Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast friends. We got an extra special episode for you today. Our guest is the editor and publisher of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report, which highlights unusual investment opportunities all around the world. Today's episode, we begin with our guest thoughts on why governments mishandled the COVID response in the last year and what he expects the long-term effects from both the monetary fiscal responses would be going forward. Then our guest shares his thoughts on why he thinks more of the younger generations favor socialism. We touch on the financial speculation markets, particularly with Robinhood and options trading. So we wind down, we hear where our guest thinks you can put some money to work. He shares his thoughts on gold, Asian stocks, energy, and financials. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Longtime listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invests material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Please enjoy this episode with the gloom, boom, and doom reports. He says Faber, I say Faber, Mark Faber. Mark, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Where in the world do we find you today? Well, I'm in north of Thailand. And remarkably, it's still quite cold. Normally, around this time of the year, it's already very warm. Uh, The peak heat will be in two or three months. But uh, this time, we had cold at night since December up to now. I need to get over there. I've never been, I can't say I've never been. We did a stopover. I took my mom. We went on a mother-son trip to Bhutan a few years ago, and we stopped in Bangkok for a day just to reacclimate and take some cooking lessons and hang out. But I I need to spend some time in Thailand when the world starts to reopen. Uh, I haven't spent that much time in Asia. And as a global investor, that's pretty shameful. So I'll definitely drop you a line when things get back to normal, hopefully soon. Mark, we got to start with a question that I've probably received a hundred times over the past couple of years, which is my last name is Faber. Your last name, I believe, is pronounced Faber. And so everyone always asks me, are we related? So what do you think? Is Do we have a long lost cousin somewhere? You're originally Swiss, right? Well, the thing is this. In my family, we have a book about the family Faber and about old families in uh, Huguenot families. Originally, we are called Fabre, F-A-B-R-E, Fabre, like you say Faber, and like I would say uh, Mr. Fabre, 
And then there is also Favre, F-A-V-R-E. So they're different. And these Huguenots in the 16th century, they went to Holland, to the Low Countries, to England, and uh, some went to Germany, and some went to the area in Switzerland called Neuchâtel. At that time, it didn't belong to Switzerland, but it belonged to the Kingdom of Prussia, the Prussian Empire. But they started to make watches near Neuchâtel. That's why most of the watches in Switzerland is not an invention of the Swiss, nor of the Chinese, nor of the Americans. It's a Huguenot invention. They brought the watchmaking skills from Paris to areas of Germany and Switzerland. I love it. Well, I'm getting a lesson in favor history because my father's side immigrated to the Midwest, Kansas and Nebraska, which is a lot of sort of French German immigrants did. And we can trace it back to it's like kind of northeast France, Martine Le Bon area. I'm sure I murdered that. And, and I think Vogue's France, sort of part of the world. But I'm sure uh, you go back a couple hundred years, that general area is probably where they were from as well. In Germany, there is a very famous family. He's a friend of mine. We went to school together. And that is the family who owns the pencils, Faber pencils. And in England, there is a publishing company called Faber and Faber. That's right. Well, I'll just tell everyone we have a common great-grandfather, and so they'll <laughs> figure it out. Well, so, you know, as is already evident for all the listeners, Mark, you're a big student of history and markets and have been um, following your work and writings for many, many years on the Gloom, Boom, Doom report, as well as your books and everything. And it's a big appreciation for a global approach to investing, but also for cycles and history. Let's just start with 2021. What's the world kind of look like to you right now? Things look totally normal, a little weird. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, for people who have been brought up in a kind of a conservative environment, we think the world has gone completely mad. (laughs) So this is the answer. But maybe... We, the conservative ones, are not the criteria. The question is really, in the Western world, the belief came up that the best systems are democracies, okay? So we have 5,000 years of recorded human history, and we have 200 years of democracy. Of those 200 years, not even... 70 years are full democracies, because as you know, in the 19th century, not everybody could vote. (laughs) Until the 1930s in America, women couldn't vote. And I'm from Switzerland. Until the mid-1990s, we had some areas in Switzerland where the women couldn't vote. So the idea of democracy has never been implemented in the sense that everybody should vote. What the idea was of democracy in Greece was that some people could vote, that you had an elite, they would be voting. This we have in China. The Communist Party is democratically organized. It's a one-party system, 
but the million members or so, they will vote for the people that go upstairs and climb the hierarchy. I never said that democracy was the optimal system, because as we've seen this year, I was told that democracy ensured freedom. But this year, some dumb, irresponsible bureaucrats, they come and tell me to close down my business, (laughs) my tattoo salon, (laughs) and my hair salon, and my restaurant, and my coffee shop, and, 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 you understand? This has never happened in history before, that the government would come to you and say, you have to close down your business. And very much. In some countries, that's a lot easier said than done, the response to the coronavirus. And in some countries, even like the U.S., it's been a huge spectrum of different approaches where Texas right now is totally open, California not in many different ways. We've kind of seen the, oddly enough to say, the benefits and drawbacks of sort of centralized rule in this sort of environment, for better or worse. Well... I have to say, personally, I haven't seen many benefits of closing down people's businesses. There may be some, but I haven't seen them. But I've seen a lot of disasters, you know, where people have really lost their savings, their livelihoods. Assuming you are 35, 40, you worked all your life and you have some savings and then you open a restaurant or a coffee shop with the money that you accumulated, your savings. Or you open a hair salon or a clinic, a dentist clinic, and suddenly they come and tell you, no, you have to close it down. What happens then with your investment? This is a complete disaster. It's hard. We, uh, we have some friends that are restaurateurs in L.A., and L.A. has been particularly nonsensical where the rules change like every month. It's been back and forth. And like you mentioned, many have not survived. Some are, but it's been really hard, particularly for uh, the restaurants here. The people that take these decisions, just look at Cuomo. The guy really doesn't know what to do. He has no clue. I mean, he sends sick people into nursing homes. (laughs) It's unbelievable. It's hard to believe. But the Americans, they sit there and they think, actually, so what? I mean, we have it's not so good, but it's not so bad. I always say, the moment the government gets involved in something, the conditions deteriorate right away. If you leave the market operating on its own, there are some disadvantages with that policy. And then there is some hardship. It's like with capitalism, there is some hardship. But I can assure you that... <laughs> You should have seen the socialist countries when I saw them in the 50s and 60s. What hardship occurred there under socialism and communism? There, I'd say, any time I take the hardship of capitalism. If you look at kind of the shifts in belief systems, whether it's in the US or elsewhere, as you mentioned, socialism has been brutal. Pretty much everywhere it's been tried. You even see what's going on in places like Venezuela now. But there's a certain romance to it that over and over again, young people seem to be attracted to. Is that a failure of education? Like, how do we 
think about structures and, and what does the future look like for countries? I mean, you have some of the largest democracies in the world now, not necessarily in the US, but different flavors in India, in Indonesia, et cetera. Any general thoughts on kind of how to think about that here in 2021? Well, I think that people who never experienced hardship, they lean towards the view that, yeah, the government should pay for this and the government should pay for that. And also, as uh, Ludwig von Mises said, you know, only people who are in favor of socialism <laughs> that have no clue about economics. You know, there's always something in life that is important, whether it's in your village or in a city or in a country or in a corporation. And this is how much does it cost? This is an important point. If the cost of implementing some measures are unreasonably high, compared to the benefit, then you shouldn't do it. Everything has to have some relationship between cost and benefits. And uh, what you said earlier on about socialism, it's been mostly a failure in large countries. I can give you a few countries, including Norway, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, where you have a fair amount of socialism and where it works reasonably well because these are small societies. We'll see how well it works in future with all the immigrants. You know, because now they have to pay also for the immigrants, not just for their own population. So how it works in future will have to be tested. But I'm just saying over the last 50, 60 years or so, these countries have done okay. There's been a lot of discussion of fiscal monetary responses to the past year that even if you'd gone back 10 years ago, I think would have been surprising, even surprising now. And we live in a world of things like negative yielding sovereigns. People talk about MMT. How do you think about, you know, a long-term commenter on central banks, their approaches to what's going on? What's your general thoughts on how these governments have responded and any ripple effects this is likely to have? Well, I'd say this. When I grew up, I was born in 46, so just after the war. And as I grew up, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. And it was absolutely natural that you would save some of your money. In other words, you were going to work and maybe 10% each month you would put aside as savings because we had just gone through a war period which was very unpleasant. Even though Switzerland wasn't directly involved in the war, we had rationing. We didn't have enough food. I remember very well each person got an egg every two weeks. So half an egg per week. This is what we had. There was a black market, but uh, normal people didn't use the black market. Some people didn't use it because they had like a hotel and they had to feed the foreigners who were staying at the hotel and so forth. But uh, in general, times were very difficult. 
the saying was, you save some money and then you put your money into a savings book with a bank. That is safe. Real estate and uh, real estate you buy because you want to live somewhere and so forth, but you don't buy it because it will go up in price. And stocks, nobody talked about stocks in the 50s. This was an unknown subject. It came up in the late 60s because there was an American technology boom. So that made stocks then famous in Europe. And there were some American mutual fund companies like Templeton and IOS, Bernie Kornfeld and the first. So they made stock investing popular. But what I wanted to say in those days, and as I went to university, I started university in 1964, nobody ever spoke of negative interest rates and nobody ever thought of having negative interest rates introduced as a policy measure. There was a discussion very briefly, but not at university, about the mad kind of a character called Gesell, Silvio Gesell. He was born in Germany, a socialist, and he had then expelled from Germany. <laughs> and he settled in the Jura in Switzerland, a mountainous part. He wrote books about monetary matters, including one that uh, essentially explained that one of the problems of economics was that because people would save money, there would always be a lack of consumption, the famous consumption shortfall by Keynes. And therefore, what you had to do is induce people to consume. You'd have to do this by either issuing money that had an expiry date. Say, I print money today, and it expires in a year's time. Or by introducing negative interest rates on that deposit. But when in the 70s, interest rates went from 6% on treasury bonds in 1970 to 15.84% in 1981, okay? We had over 15%. I can tell you that nobody in the whole world dreamt that interest rates would go and in Europe be in most countries <laughs> negative and that Portugal would have lower interest rates than the US. Nobody. So there are lots of things that have happened that we never envisioned. And also, I remember when the great debt explosion occurred in the 1980s, I had some friends at Merrill Lynch, Charlie Minter and uh, Stan Salvixen and Chuck Cloud. They uh, essentially said the debt expansion is not sustainable. The system will break. We have to kind of reduce the debt growth in the US. And what happened, debt has then accelerated on the upside. Nothing was reduced. <laughs> 
So lots of things occur that we never thought about. I was smiling as you were telling the story because my father used to talk a lot about, he was born before you in the 30s, but grew up very poor in Nebraska, like outhouse style poor. And used to say for Christmas, what they'd get for Christmas was a new pair of blue jeans, which they then wore the rest of the year. And we used to talk about growing up in that sort of environment during and after the war. And, and I said, look, the challenges and the hardship color so many of your ethics and beliefs the rest of your life. Do you regret the difficulties growing up? He said, look, we still got to play baseball. We still got to have fun and, and we survived. And reflecting back, it certainly wasn't pleasant at the time, but certainly has a different feel in many cases to where we are today in 2021 with a lot of the MMT. I know you're a student of currencies in particular and have talked about countries that have really struggled with their monetary and fiscal policies both. Do you see kind of where we are in modern times as being foolish? Are there any particular governments that seem to be doing a better job than worse? What are general thoughts as you look around the globe? Well, I think the answer is really to quote Milton Friedman, the economist, who is actually hardly ever quoted because the modern economists don't agree with his sound economic theories that were in favor of small government and large private sector. So the economists of today, they don't like to quote him. But he basically said, if we look at history and we uh, compare the different systems, there's only one system that has lifted the prosperity in the world to the same extent and reduced the poverty rate as much as we've done with the capitalistic system. Despite of all the criticism about it, the fact is simply that never before in history have there been this much prosperity in the world. When you think about it, in the 15th century, the prince and the lords and the barons and so forth, they were eating different food than ordinary people. Today, everybody eats a hamburger, including President <laughs> Trump. <laughs> you understand? And everybody drinks a Coca-Cola of the same quality. Mr. Buffett, who is one of the richest people in the world, he doesn't drink a Coca-Cola of a higher quality than you do. He has precisely the same can. Whereas in aristocratic societies, the feudals, they had better quality wines than you had. They had better quality meat than you had, and so forth. I think that the critics of the capitalistic system, they don't see sufficiently the benefits that capitalism has brought along. And, you know, I studied the Russian Revolution quite carefully. <laughs> I mean, all I can say, it wasn't a very pleasant time. The Russian Revolution is one of the two examples we give, I believe, you know, one of my favorite investing books, Triumph the Optimist, that kind of walks through all the various 
market returns over the past 120 years. And there being a couple examples of when the financial markets essentially shut down altogether, one in Russia and one in China, and then many others, of course, where you had devastating losses at one point, including in the US, but just about every country, you know, at some point has um, some pretty massive declines. Although I think Switzerland may have the lowest real stock market drawdown of all the countries. Does that sound about right? I think that might be the case. I'd have to go look at my data again. But the return over the longer term wasn't particularly good. But it was okay. So it was better than to be in cash and in bonds. As we kind of shift around from policies, I have one more kind of policy economic question, and then we can hop over to markets. One of my struggles, particularly in the US, is that we don't teach any sort of personal finance and investing in schools, market history is useful as well. That gets a little, but even the, just the practical basics. Do you have any suggestions for like, as we talk about capitalism and socialism and general, just personal finance knowledge, is it hopeless? Is it something that can be taught? Any general thoughts on how we can improve that here and around the world? I think the best is for the teachers to stay away from teaching anything. I mean, quite frankly, when I see some of the education level around the world, especially in some schools in the US, they have to scratch your head. Are these people really claiming to be the superpower of the world with their extremely limited knowledge? I mean, I always said I rather have Trump than many other presidents especially Hillary Clinton, Mr. Trump himself is a complete ignoratus. He doesn't have a clue about anything. And Mr. Biden may have a clue, but he doesn't remember it. How much of a role do you think that the internet will play? I mean, I'm hopeful in the sense that that can be the great disinfectant and democratizer where people have internet access and can get access to the best education at a much lower cost. Is that just being a little too uh, optimistic and dreaming on my part? Well, again, there are different views. The other day, my nephew, he's 17, he's the son of my late brother. He sent me an email and he said, well, that he hoped that I also bought GameStop and that I bought some Bitcoins. And then he explained to me a while ago I wanted to buy bitcoins, but he couldn't because at 17, you can't open an account. So he asked his mother to open an account for him. The mother didn't want to do that wisely. So in Switzerland, apparently, when you buy a train ticket at the same time, you can buy bitcoins at the station, the railroad, the Swiss railroad company. It's called SPB, Schweizerische. Bundesbahn and so forth. So at his age, he bought, he said, I paid 400, you know, it's a fraction of bitcoins. But now he said, he sent me the statement, it's worth 1700. And so I scratched my head. I said, shit, this dumb ass never invested in his life. I should have put all my money in the bitcoin act when he did, and it would have gone up more than four times in a brief period of time. So I'm not saying anything anymore. Yeah, yeah. But I think it will end badly because 
these waves of speculation have never ended well. But we have to concede that if we have a lottery, okay? We launch a lottery for the whole of the US. And at the end, there is a lottery, a pot of 100 million or maybe 200 million or so. Someone wins. And accidentally, he wins the following months again. So, of course, people will look at him and say, but this is a genius. So immediately someone will Dow Jones or <laughs> Wiley will make a contract with him for him to write a book, How to Win the Lottery, like the Birdstown ladies in the late 1990s. <laughs> they claimed that they had a system to invest in stock. And so, you know, these games, we call them the winners take all games. In a lottery, normally there's one winner and that's it. You understand? The others don't win anything, depending also how the lottery is structured. But in general, there's one winner. And because the payout is so big, the temptation of people to play is very high. You just go and look at Las Vegas or go and look at online gaming and, and so forth and so on. So people now, I tell you what it does to a society. When you print money, you have ordinary people. They went to apprentice for carpenter or for electrician or whatnot. They earn maybe, I don't know, two, three thousand dollars a month. So maybe once they completed the apprentice more. But these people work the whole month and they get to two, three thousand, four thousand dollars. And then the body with whom they meet at the pub, they speculate in GameStop and they earn those three, four thousand dollars every day. So the whole society <laughs> moves to the printing machine. They all gamble instead of working. They stay home, place their orders to, uh, with Robin Hood. And that works for a while, for as long as you have someone who is really dumb at the Federal Reserve, such as Janet Yellen. And they keep on printing money, like also Jerome Powell. And as long as the money is being printed and given out to people, as you say, it's a modern monetary theory and so forth, this game can last. But do you think that a society can build its wealth by essentially everybody sitting on the beach and having a money printing machine? Doesn't work that way. It's actually the recipe to an economic decay of greater proportions. So when you ask me, we're in year 2021, where do we go? How do you feel? I'm telling you that uh, we are in a society in the Western world where we actually keep on criticizing people that are hardworking, like the Chinese and the Indians who work the whole day in factories and produce goods. And we criticize and attack them for producing these goods, which we in the Western world can buy at low cost. We don't say thank you. We say, oh, they're ripping us off. No, we are ripping them off. We're giving them dollars that we're sure will depreciate in value. 
You can certainly see lots of signs of excess. I mean, we have a thread on Twitter that kind of lists a bunch of charts over and over again that talk about valuations and sentiment and kind of everything that's going on. You mentioned a, a few of the highlights. Certainly, I saw a poll recently that was talking about what most of the young people plan on doing with their stimulus. And <laughs> I think it was half said stock market. Now, if they told me they were going to put it in and lockbox it for 10, 20 years in a global portfolio, God bless them. But that's unlikely to be probably the intention. And so I spend a lot of time, the struggle I have as a public manager is you can see the money wash in and out of funds on a daily basis. And I'm trying to solve this issue by having um, some sort of like behavioral nudges or gates that really keep people trying to behave in their best interest. But it's not an easy task because you can't really require people to lock their money up necessarily or to invest in a thoughtful way. So it's a constant struggle for me. The poor podcast listeners have heard me moan about it for years now. Yeah, sure. It's a challenge. And I want to tell you something which people don't understand. In the course of my life, I've known many traders, okay? The traders, they work for, say, Goldman Sachs, or they work for City, or for UBS, or Credit Suisse, Barclays, whatnot. They trade currencies, interest rates, and stocks. But they have one advantage. They can see the order flow. You see, the orders from the customers come through the trading desks. They can see the market is buying, the market is selling. They can see a big buyer each time the market is coming back a bit, he will step in and buy. And another one, each time the market is going up a bit, he will sell. That information is crucial to the performance of traders. Crucial. Now, as it happens, a lot of these genius traders who became friends of mine over time because I was actively dealing in the uh, equities and bonds and currencies and so i kept in touch with them and they frequently gave up their jobs or they were given up <laughs> in other words they were fired because as you know in london there were lots of manipulative activities and so forth so anyway once these traders were alone and they didn't see the order flow anymore okay they didn't see the order flow. They were now on their own in a room or in an office or whatnot. But the absence of the order flow killed them. And all the Robin Hood traders, they have to be aware their orders are channeled through people like Citadel. They actually buy the order flow from Robin Hood and other brokers that in quotation mark are commission free and so in my view trading through robin hood is a little bit like going to the casino the longer you will play in a casino the greater the probability that you will lose money because the odds in a casino by the nature of the casino that has to pay for the building and that to pay for the maintenance of the machine they have a higher odds of winning than the gambler. So the longer the gambler is in the casino, the more likely is he going to lose. 
And that, I think, young people have to understand. The geniuses in our business, go and look at the big mansions and look at the big real estate holdings in the world, in Australia, in Argentina, in America. These are people that had businesses. They invested for the long term. They had factories and they built banks and so forth. They didn't make it trading in and out. It's just that the time now, starting with the 80s of the money printing era, that time has favored the hedge fund guys. Partly, nobody knows why. I mean, I was a good friend. We haven't seen each other for a long time. Dean Barron, he was one of the first with John Bogle to develop index funds. He always said, Mark, the one thing that we cannot understand is that someone would give his money to someone else to look after it, pay him 2% per annum fee and 20% performance fee. When you think about it, it's unbelievable that someone would do that. He doesn't get 20% back if he loses. So over time, all these hedge funds guys, and I'm not complaining, I'm also involved in the financial sector. So I also had my cut. But I'm just saying that the environment we live in favors quick profits and long-term loss. Yeah, you know, it's funny. This was all going down this past quarter. I mean, I've certainly seen a lot of friends start to get interested in markets that aren't normally talking about trading. And I've been very public on Twitter and elsewhere in many of my opinions are unpopular. But one, I was saying, I said, look, Robin Hood is not the good guy of this story. I think that they're the sheriff of Nottingham. I said, if you look at the three main ways they make money, payment for order flow being one, the short lending revenue, two, and then obviously the interest spread on your cash. I said, there's a billion dollar idea for someone out there. I don't want to do it because it gets conflicty, but to start a brokerage that says, look, if you're going to sell your customer's order flow, if you're going to lend out their shares, default them into a margin account, not tell them, lend out their shares, and you're going to keep this huge cash spread, at least share, say share like half of it. I think the best behavior is not to do it. But if you're going to do it, share it with the end consumer, because after all, it's their stocks that they're holding. And some brokerages do elements of that. So interactive brokers, for example, We'll share the short lending revenue. Most public funds like ours return all the short lending revenue to the end investors, as does Vanguard and others, but the brokerages don't. And so I think it's a business opportunity. We'll see if anyone um, is, is interested in doing it. But to take advantage of this whole mess this year, at least it's drawn some light on kind of what the brokers do. But you mentioned such an important takeaway, which is everyone has to be hyper aware of all the costs involved in investing. And it's not just commissions, but the few we mentioned in the fees, massive hedge fund performance fees. Are there some that are worth it? Sure. You want to get into medallion, maybe it's closed too bad, (laughs) but the fees can be a huge hurdle for performance over time. And and having that long-term perspective, it's tough. I mean, Charles Ellis, We call him Charlie. He wrote a very good book. Uh, He said, look, if you're an investor, you better realize, like in playing tennis, 
are you a very good tennis player or a very bad one? A very good tennis player like Nadal, Roger Federer, Djokovic, they can play aggressively to win points. They can hit the ball exactly where they want the ball to go to. Whereas <laughs> Mr. Faber and Mr. Faber, they hit the ball. They're lucky if it goes across the net, certainly in my case. Absolutely accurate in my case as well. So my game has to be a game where you make as few mistakes as possible. Djokovic, he can play a game where he can take a risk to make some mistakes because he hardly ever makes a mistake. So in investing, you have to know yourself. Are you a good investor or a lousy investor? I know many people, they're very intelligent, but they're bad investors until they can make up their mind about something. And number two, once they make up their mind that they are right, that nothing can go wrong. And I tell you, I've known so many people. This is not the first time people were shorting the yen. They were shorting Japanese JGBs. They were shorting Tesla. These were all obvious cases where the thing was going to go down one day. Right? It just didn't happen at the time they were expecting. And I can tell you, a lot of these obvious shorts, as well as obvious longs, have been graveyards. I know I'm not a particularly brilliant investor, so I diversify. You know, I have some precious metals, I have some stocks, mostly in Asia, and I have some bonds and some cash and some real estate. Mark, we uh, we chatted a few years ago when we put out this global asset allocation book, which is listeners, of course, is free to download online. And we modeled a lot of portfolios, generically speaking, of famous investors. And it wasn't exactly, of course, what you invest in, but a broad allocation that mentioned the assets that you just talked about. And it was funny because in all the portfolios in the book, what we call the Mark Faber portfolio has the singular honor of being the only portfolio, and this, if you take it back to the 1970s, of having positive real returns in every decade. I think that's true. I would have to relook at it. There may have been another one. Well, I'm happy it's not negative returns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so the volatility of the decade returns was really low, but it's an interesting. The one sort of standout, of course, in this portfolio relative to others is gold. Talk to us a little bit about how you think about it. It's had a monster run. It seems to be taking a break here in 2021 as interest rates come out. What sort of the thesis does it still hold in this world of MMT even more so? Well, it's like uh, bitcoins. And in the case of bitcoins, even more so, the quantity is limited. And so when you print money, you have more and more paper unit on less and less physical gold or on the 22 million bitcoins that are outstanding or will be outstanding. So anything that you cannot multiply at the same rate as uh, paper money, 
say, a Picasso, <laughs> the supply is limited unless it's a fake. But there are some where fakes are very difficult to make because the quantity is very well known. A Rembrandt, that that many outstanding and no more. And the same would be uh, the case of Van Gogh's or for Gutenberg Bibles or old books or the Magna Charta. There's only one in the world. <laughs> so these things, they have an intrinsic value because you can't multiply it the way you multiply dollars and drop them by helicopters onto the US. I think uh, gold, and I don't want to go into a discussion here about the merits and dismerits. There are some disadvantages and people, before they buy it, they should know what they're dealing with, uh, you understand, and what the disadvantages are. One of them is obviously, if you, Mr. Faber, decides to visit Mr. Faber <laughs> in Thailand, you cannot take 10 kilos of gold in your bag, but you could come here with $5 million worth of Bitcoins in your wallet. So these are things, you know, that, but there are some advantages of having gold and disadvantages of having cryptocurrencies. My view is I may not see it because I'm already aged, <laughs> as you can see. But I think we don't know how the world will look like in five or ten years' time because, as I said earlier, I never expected certain things. When I saw interest rates going up in the 70s, I never would have thought that they would go down to where they went down to and that they would distribute money, this MMT and so forth. I never thought that the ideology of Marx, socialism, would, after all the disasters that it produced in Eastern Europe, in Russia, in China, that it would make a comeback, not in those countries that had socialism, they don't want it ever again. But in our Western prosperous democracies, that I will never understand. As you look at a lot of the proponents of capitalism, free markets, it's often immigrants from the countries you mentioned that had experienced it or their parents. And they say, look, you guys need to wake up if you've been to those periods in various countries. It's a nightmare. But that's politics for you. So as you look around countries and stock markets, any particular, uh, you know, we see a lot of the bubbly behavior in the U.S., but any particular markets look interesting to you? Are there areas of the world that you're bullish on in particular sectors, anything else? Well, I think oil, energy sector is in the early stages of a bull market and financials, banks, insurance companies. And then, you know, more old economy type of shares. I like the Asian markets. I think some of the Asian markets are not expensive. You know, people are very bearish about Hong Kong because the Western media is, of course, anti-China and they dramatize what has happened in Hong Kong a lot. So they're misinformed. I think Hong Kong has a great future, but they have to keep out the foreign media. Because you understand, the future of Hong Kong is not the life Hong Kong enjoyed 
between 1842, when it became a British holding, until 1997, the lease was 450 years. Anyway, the future of Hong Kong is in combination with the so-called Greater Bay Area. These are cities like Shenzhen, Dongguang, Guangzhou, Macau, and so forth. This is an area of close to 80 million people. And as part of this 80 million people that has a very high GDP per capita, you know, this is not the China in the far east, far eastern China. This is a prosperous area. As part of that area, the Greater Bay Area, it has a great future. But it doesn't have a great future if the American interventionists, led by people like Victoria Nuland, go <laughs> interfere into their affairs. I mean, I suppose the U.S. wouldn't be very happy if the Chinese interfered into the affairs of a friendly country. So all I want to say is we have to be very open about the different perspective we look at the world. The U.S. has been brainwashed in this exceptionalism, and they don't consider that other societies have had other traditions than the U.S. and have reacted or have to take measures in order for history not to repeat itself. Don't forget, in the 19th century, both India <laughs> and China were ruled by foreign powers. They don't want this to happen again. So there are certain reactions. But I would invest the money in India and in China and in Southeast Asia. I think that's where the future will be. I think there are some stocks in Europe that have become value stocks. They're reasonably priced, not terribly expensive. But again, we have to look at it uh, from the following perspective. We have zero interest rates. So if you have a billion dollars or a hundred billion dollars, you can choose, like my grandmother said, you put it all on safe deposits. <laughs> safe. Yeah, but a hundred million at zero interest rate. It's not particularly safe. So you buy stocks, you buy some gold, you buy some bitcoins, you buy some properties, then we have to decide where and this and that. This is another subject. My message is investing looks very easy when you buy something and the next day it's up 10%. But to be consistently making money on your investment is not so easy. I look at what's going on now with a lot of the Robinhood and, and day trading and, and speculative stocks and expensive stocks and tech, and it has a lot of rhymes in the 90s. And I, of course, can't be too judgmental because that was me in the 90s. You know, the names were different. I was using E-Trade rather than Robinhood, but I was in university and making all the same dumb mistakes, but gladly lost all my money when I was young and didn't have much. But those are lessons that most of us traders go through at some point, hopefully young and hopefully with no money, because you eventually get the scars that last a lifetime and put in procedures or guardrails or portfolios that keep you from doing the really dumb stuff. We talk a lot about investing globally. As you know, most 
investors, and this is true all around the world, love to invest most of their money in their own stock market. And it's particularly true in the US with this home country bias. And so we talk a lot about diversifying globally and how many of these markets are much cheaper on a valuation basis than the US is. A number of the Asian countries, certainly Thailand is in there, but Singapore, uh, Malaysia, and then a lot of Europe. You touched on energy, which is fascinating to me just to demonstrate the cycles of markets where it went from 30% of the S&P all the way down to, I think it bottomed out at like 2%. I think it's up to three or four now, <laughs> but it's still a long way from 30. So yeah, thinking about the diversification, I think is important. What else has got you uh, on your brain, Mark? It's been a weird year with everyone in quarantine. You had some time to read a little bit, write a little bit as a student of history. Anything either you're thinking about, you're excited about, anything that you've been reading that's great, got you confused, worried, happy, anything come to mind? Well, the one thing that I realized is how poor uh, governments are. And when you think of it, you have in America, okay, I'm not saying that the 330 million Americans are well-educated, but say we could say maybe 30, 40 million, you know, 10%, 20%, and that they can only choose some of the worst characters, both in terms of personality and integrity, to be their leaders. You have to scratch your head. I mean, it's unbelievable. But it's not much better in Switzerland. It's not a complaint against the US. In Europe, it's the same. For me, democracy has failed, period. I don't know what is coming afterwards. I can't imagine it will be very good. Any guides to history that, uh, as the optimist in me would think that the amount of private market, startup innovation that's going on, science and technology makes up for some of the woes of our political leaders. It seems universal, at least, that citizens around the world almost always <laughs> dislike the the people that get funneled up to the top of politics. Anything on your brain as far as lessons of history that in this particular time are rhyme or useful? When you think about it in the 19th century, it was an incredible productive century in terms of inventions. Just think of the railroad. What kind of an invention it was for the first time in 5,000 years of history, you could move people and goods at a faster pace than ever before. You understand? The Romans, they moved their legions at the same speed or probably a higher speed than Napoleon moved his armies because Napoleon, he had to move the cannons. <laughs> These were unbelievably heavy things. So on bad roads, they were sinking into the ground. This was a major enterprise to travel with an army, same for the Germans, to travel to Stalingrad <laughs> in the Second World War was an unbelievable undertaking. And then the supplies. So all I'm saying is the railroad was a huge invention also for the U.S. because it allowed the opening of the Midwest and then of the East Coast, of the West Coast, sorry, and the steam engine and the 
inventions in agricultural, the tractor and so forth, and all the machinery. And that was followed by two of the most cruel wars. By the way, since <laughs> Miss Megan and Mr. Harry are such popular people in the US, I mean, I, we Europeans can't understand this tum tum around these two clowns. But uh, I just wanted to say World War I was fought between three cousins, King George of England and Kaiser Wilhelm and Nicholas II in Russia, the Tsar. They were all cousins. And by the way, if you look up the pictures of Harry's great-grandfather, King George, and also of Tsar Nicholas. They look exactly like Prince Harry. Incredible resemblance because they're German origin. Anyway, I think it was very nice to talk to you. We can follow up on this discussion on another occasion. Love to. Mark, where do people go if they want to uh, follow what you're up to, your writings, your goings-ons? What's the best place? They can go to the website gloomboomdoom.com. Awesome, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us today. <laughs> well, they can go to you, <laughs> to our interviews. <laughs> Faber and Faber. <laughs> That's right. That's a great name for a new podcast. Well, look, Mark, when you find the world reopening, come say hi in Los Angeles. If you ever find yourself here, I'll buy you a dinner or beer, and I'll do the same if I ever get over to your part of the world. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>